All right, good morning, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Hope you had a good one, and uh, welcome back to those who are traveling. Um, I hope you were able to spend it with family and friends. Uh, we have been able to. It's been relaxing and good. Did all the uh, uh, free stuff that Chicago has to offer, um, and the zoo lights, the conservatory, the Garrett's popcorn. No, that wasn't free, but it's been great. And so I hope you got to enjoy it. And if you did not yet, just know you've got people here who would love to enjoy it with you. Um, but what I want to tell you is that uh, this is a great season. Um, next week actually begins our Advent season, uh, where we're celebrating Christmas and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in preparation uh, for that, what we've been doing is we've um, started already uh, a series called Fulfilled, uh, which talks about the fulfilled prophecies that Jesus Christ actually came and in his life um, not only accomplished in terms of his living, his preaching, his living, his dying, and his resurrection from the dead, um, but also how it practically fulfilled the aspects of our lives that were the deepest seated needs and desires that God himself, the creator, gave us as human beings. And so in fulfilling his word, we're going to uh, be looking at not only how he fulfilled the scripture, but we're going to also be looking at how those fulfilled actually touched on the very nerves that God has given us to long for, reach for, and actually know him, come to know him if we don't, okay? So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into it. I know that <clears throat> a lot of people are still in their Black Friday hangover, and also with the tryptophan, but we're going to push through today. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your good news towards us today. God, we thank you for uh, your scripture that is living and active, and that gives us the ability not only to know you, but after we've come to know you through Jesus to walk with you on a daily basis. God, we're asking that by your Holy Spirit today that you would lift us, that you would encourage us, um, that God, you would give us the ability to see you clearly as you are in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today what we're going to do is, if you're taking notes, we're going to talk about uh, the next part of the Fulfilled series, but we're going to talk about it in terms of uh, what Jesus fulfilled in terms of his coming and specifically focusing on how he came and who he came and through what family he came through. And even in the family that he came through, it's a significant apologetic because of all the things that um, people talk about uh, Jesus fulfilling in the scripture, uh, many times in the terms of the the pushback that people have um, in Jesus' life, knowing the scripture, many people say that Jesus knew the scripture and therefore tried to fulfill the prophecies that would enable him to be identified as the Messiah. Now, of all the things that Jesus fulfilled, there were certain things that he could have attained to, right? In terms of his living, he could have um, ascribed to the law of God. He could have um, lived in obedience to the law of God with all his effort, um, just as you and I as Christians today um, attempt to live with all of our effort to please God and serve him through his word. Um, but one of the things that he could not do, <clears throat> that he was not able to uh, mash, um, sort of put together by his own hand or his own doing, was the family line in which he was born. And I think that uh, that's a good reminder um, for all of us, even when we uh, have celebrated the Thanksgiving season, because some of us came uh, home and, or came from our family lines and we uh, celebrated the great family lines that we came from. Some of us were reminded that we've got to choose to be thankful, right? In the midst of the family lines and what we've had to push through in terms of the family unit that we were born into, but God's redemptive and he's working through that. 
that. But um, what we see in the scripture is that God prophetically, through the prophets throughout the ages, was pinpointing the person who would be the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One, the one who would come to save the world from their sins and bring humanity back into friendship with God through his redemptive work. And we see that one of the um, most clear uh, explanations of this uh, prophetic coming was through the prophet Isaiah. And so today we're going to look in two places. We're going to look first in the Old Testament about the prophetic ministry of Isaiah himself. And then secondly, we're going to see how that was fulfilled through one of Jesus' apostles when he was describing Jesus' family line in the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible today, let's look first at uh, Isaiah chapter 11, and then we're going to also look at Matthew chapter 1. And if you're taking notes, we're going to understand how in this coming through this family line, Jesus was actually fulfilling not only the prophecy of through whom who he, he would come, but also what he would come to fulfill through that family line. And three parts are going to be fulfilled in this. He would understand, we would have an understanding of how Jesus fulfilled our need to understand worship. Number two, wisdom from God to live for him in our present generation. And then number three, he would be the fulfillment of a man of war that, need, that we all need to fight for us, to lead us into the victories that God has for us. So let's open, first of all, to Isaiah chapter 11, starting at verse 1. This is Isaiah. And if you're not familiar with Isaiah, Isaiah was a prophet who prophesied uh, approximately 700 plus years before Jesus himself showed up on the scene. So if you're looking chronologically at things, he was um, a man in Israel. But by the time of Isaiah's writing, there were two kingdoms in Israel. Israel was broken into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Israel in its northern kingdom was apostate, meaning that they had gone astray. They had started living for the godless ways of the cultures and the communities around them. And in the southern kingdom, they weren't doing much better, but they held on for a period of time to work the worship of God, the worship of the one true God at the temple in Jerusalem, trying to cling to his laws and his ways. But at the same time, they were starting to be influenced by those around them as well, much like the church today. And here in this context, Isaiah's prophesying and talking about the Messiah who would come and make things right again, would come and actually turn people back to the true worship of the true God. And he starts off by saying this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees, what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child 
shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as the signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So all of a sudden we see that Isaiah, though he was a man of culture and he was a man of uh, great education, we see that because of his great vocabulary and the things that he describes in the midst of his testimony. You have several of the prophets uh, throughout Israel's history, and they were given uh, different words to communicate to the people. But you could tell sort of their background based on the manner in which they communicated. Isaiah was thought to be a nobleman who was comfortable in the courts of the king. And whenever he was prophesying, he was prophesying to the people at a time when Israel, or at least the southern kingdom of Judah, was experiencing great prosperity and peace. Much like America today, right? Though there's turmoil in the midst of our culture, on on a large scale, we're experiencing prosperity and peace. But at the same time, Isaiah was raised up by God because in the midst of that prosperity and peace, the people were turning away from the commandments of God. And so God was raising up prophets like Isaiah, other contemporaries of um, Isaiah who were Hosea, Micah, and Amos. And so if you go and read through the scripture, you see these different names. These were men of God who were raised up at that time to speak to the condition of people's hearts in the midst of the security that they were presently feeling. And what God is saying through Isaiah in this moment is that ultimately in this time of peace and prosperity, it's easy for people to go astray from God and it's easy for people to forget his commandments. It is easy for people to begin to construct a form of worship for themselves that has nothing really to do with what what God said about himself or what is pleasing to him or what he prescribes, but instead, because in a, in a condition of peace and prosperity, people begin to have confidence in themselves, their own machinations, and their own makings. They begin to construct for themselves what is right before God and the worship of him. And whenever he's talking about this branch or this root that's going to come from the stump of Jesse, this root is initially going to hit at that thing that has gone astray in people's hearts, where he says, you're starting to construct a spirituality that has nothing to do with who I am. You're beginning to construct a spirituality that has nothing to do with my commandments, and this root from the stump of Jesse is going to come to call you back to the true worship of the true God. Now, how do we know what the true worship of the true God looks like? We know it by his word. That's what Cole lifted up when he was talking about the purple book. That's why we encourage it over and over again. It's simple and it's clear, but it gets you into the word of God, which God said, I'm giving you my word that you might know me, that you might love me, and you might follow me in all of my ways. And without my word, you're only making up a form of worship that I'm not pleased with. You may ascribe my or attach my name to it, but it does not mean it's a worship that I endorse. It does not mean that it's a worship that I'm blessed by or pleased with. And so often in our American culture, our Western culture, we're giving God a form of worship that he himself is not pleased with because he hasn't required it of us or he is not, it doesn't align with that which he's already demanded of us. 
and what God's trying to return us through to through this Messiah, through this anointed one, through this leader of the people is the worship that he's described in his word. True and authentic worship. Now, whenever we see that, we see that he's doing that. We see that it's going to be by the spirit of God. Going back to the scripture, it said that there's going to be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And the people to whom Isaiah was speaking at the time would have been familiar with this designation. Jesse was the father of a man named King David. And King David was known as a man after God's own heart. And he was known as a man after God's own heart because in describing him, he said that this man, God said of this man, David, he will do everything I want him to do. Meaning that he'll give himself to obedience to God's commands, obedience to his law, obedience to his word. He would enact, in, in essence, fight the battles that the Lord had for him. But by the time that Isaiah is speaking, we see that the people have gone astray from that. And it said the spirit of the Lord will rest on him when he raises up this Messiah. Why? Because he'll have wisdom and understanding. Understanding of what? Understanding of true worship. Understanding of the scripture and how to apply it to everyday life. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Meaning that it's not enough that we think that we're obeying God's commands if we don't actually open the Bible and read it to understand what he's commanded. We're just giving him those Christmas socks that nobody asked for. We're giving him that which we think he might be blessed by, but it has nothing to do with what pleases his heart because we don't have the knowledge that will actually line up with the obedience that he's asking for. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon this Messiah to turn us to true worship because he's saying, I'm going to know his commands and how to employ them. I'm going to have his commands and I'm going to love my Heavenly Father by obeying that which he's already said. And we see that when he's coming, he's coming as the shoot of the stump of Jesse. Now, why is that significant? Because though God had anointed this man, David, to be king, to rule and bring God's kingdom over the known world, we see that those who came after him were those who started to go astray. And in God's original covenant, he said this, There's going to be blessings for obedience when you have the knowledge of the Lord and obey my law, and there'll be curses for disobedience. Meaning when you disobey me, I'll resist you, and then there will be trouble that comes upon you, disciplining that comes upon you. And what we see is by the time that Jesus shows up on the scene, the once great kingdom of David had been whittled down to a stump. He had formerly had renown, strength, respect, and power in the nations. Where though they were a small nation, the surrounding nations looked to them and actually feared them because they knew that God was with them. By the time Jesus showed up on the scene, they were actually a stump and were being overthrown and overlorded by the Roman authorities that were actually dominating at that time. But the Messiah would come from this stump. He would come from this root. Now, what does this mean for us today? It means that there was once a great surge 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's spread over the known world. And even to this day, the good news is, regardless of what you're hearing, the gospel is still advancing and growing in power. Nation after nation, nation after nation, people are coming to the knowledge and glory of God. And isn't that good news? Through signs, wonders, miracles, through the preaching of his word. But in the, place, in the places where the word of God is no longer honored, what we see is that the church is being whittled down to a stump. And it's because of things like this idea that we do not any longer have to obey that which God has commanded, but instead we are part of a modern community and a modern culture that has to adapt with the times. The people that surround us and the culture that we find ourselves in are the ways in which we need to live. How many people have ever felt that pressure before if you even haven't said it out of your mouth? Things that have to do with what we do with our time, what we do with our talents, what we do with our treasure, what we do in terms of affirming or disaffirming people's choices in regards to sexuality, in regards to the way that they treat their spouses and their children, the openness that they have to all different types of things. These are things that we think are negotiable now. And when we give ourselves to to um, non, we give ourselves in non-negotiable things to that which the culture is doing. What we become as a people, as a church, is a stump. When we're meant to be a tree of and an oak of righteousness, that's the pillar and foundation of the truth in the societies in which we find ourselves. And what God's doing through his word is continually calling his people back to the truth, saying, this is knowledge, this is worship, this is how you will actually honor me. Do not fear, uh, even though you feel like the smallest of nations, I'm with you as I was with the Israelites. And if you begin to stand on my word, just as the Israelites stood on my law and obeyed it, I'll make you glorious amongst the nations and bring great fame to my name, even as as I did in their time. Now, when we're thinking about not just true worship and going back to God's word, but actually wisdom and how to employ it, we often have this question, well, what parts of the word of God should we obey? What parts of the word should we obey? What's still relevant today? And what passed away, you know, with the old covenant or the old Testament, right? Anybody ever asked that question or been in discussions like that before? Sort of like, what's applicable today? What does God really require of me today? And what is it that God sort of says, well, that's all, it's all grace, under grace now. And so basically, you could do whatever you want, believe whatever you want, as long as you hold to the name of Jesus, and you'll be fine. Well, wisdom, the same wisdom that was on the Messiah, actually comes to illuminate it for us. When Jesus shows up and begins his preaching ministry, we see in Matthew chapter 5, him beginning to speak. Him beginning to speak, and not only is he saying, I'm coming to return you to true worship, but I'm giving you wisdom for how to live today. And if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, he made it very clear, saying this, Do not think, I have come. To abolish the law and the prophets. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Because even today, people of scholarly journals or writers of modern texts, they experience Jesus as a great revolutionary, right? 
How many people have seen on the uh, bookshelves or in Barnes & Noble that book, Zealot? Anybody seen that? Okay, that's all right. Don't worry about it. Okay, the point, the point is, is that people try to ascribe to Jesus this revolutionary mindset or this a mentality that this is who he is, as if he's coming to bring in a, a brand new system disconnected from that which was historical Judaism. But Jesus is saying, listen, I'm making it very clear to you. Let me give you some wisdom, which is the proper application of knowledge. He says, I'm not coming to abolish the law, meaning to get rid of it, but to do what? Fulfill it. I'm coming to fulfill it. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, and this isn't just the righteousness that he was going to give, but right living in obedience to his commandments. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So all of a sudden, the people of God, they had this great expectation in the Messiah who was going to come. But they were like, listen, we've gone so far astray, we started to adopt the mentalities and the shifting, um, um, the shifting cultural mores and the shifting cultural uh, pleasures and values. We've begun to adopt that which surrounds us. And then Jesus is saying, hey, listen, I'm telling you, until heaven and earth pass away, I'm telling you, as the one who's come, this Messiah, this root from the stump of Jesse, I'm telling you, unless you you obey the commandments that I've already given you, that I'm trying to, as a prophet, return you to. And unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees who preached a lot, but didn't always follow it up with action, right? They ascribed to the commandments of God, but they had a hypocrisy about them. They didn't live it, meaning they were nominal. They had nominal obedience, he said, unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is the wisdom that this Messiah or this um, prophet is trying to give to us? He's saying literally that this, this is going to be the case. Anything that's fulfilled in him doesn't need to be replicated in the law. He's saying, I'm coming to fulfill it, not abolish it. Whenever God is looking to receive you, he's saying Jesus is fulfilling for you this Messiah, this root from the stump of Jesse is fulfilling for you things you can't fulfill yourself. There is no perfection in any of us, right? We've all missed the mark. We've all gone astray. And ultimately, we all need a sacrifice to be able to even approach a holy, perfect, pure God. And he's saying, listen, that can't be fulfilled in you. That's why I sent my son Jesus. I'm coming to fulfill the law and the prophets. He did it perfectly. The law in his obedience, the prophets in who he was and what he would do. But anything that he did not fulfill in and of himself is left 
for us as righteousness to obey today. Do you see the difference between the two? So whenever there's an atonement that's necessary for our sin, Jesus has already fulfilled that. There is no sacrifice that we can make that will ever give us peace with God outside of Jesus. But it's not in spite of, but it's because of that sacrifice that out of that place we live in obedience. We live in righteousness. And so what that means is the law of the spirit of life. Remember, anybody heard that reference before in Romans? It's the law of the spirit of life that set me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is that which was against me. I fell short of it. I'm condemned until Jesus, the sacrifice, comes and makes atonement for me. But then the law of the spirit of life compels me to live in obedience to the very law that he had come to fulfill. So it's circular, right? It's cyclical. It brings you right back to that which he fulfilled himself. And he says, follow my example now. Vis-a-vis what? Practical interactions on a daily basis with people. This is where the fruit of the Holy Spirit comes from, right? You have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All of these things were the summation of that Old Testament law. He's saying this is how you interact with one another. Treat one another this way. What do I do with my time? Well, I offer it as a sacrifice to God. What do I do with my treasure? I offer it as a sacrifice to God. What do I do with my talents? I offer them as a sacrifice to God. Why? Because Jesus isn't going to live my life for me. He's lived the perfect life he's already lived. Now says, by the Spirit of God, be obedient in your everyday experience to that which I've already commanded you. Not so that you can have peace with God, but so that you can please him. Living out of the righteousness that he's provided for you. And this is the wisdom that he's given us. He's saying, don't turn from the things I've already commanded, but as I fulfilled them so that you could have peace with God, now live in them so that you might actually please him. Whatever, to reiterate, has been fulfilled in Christ is finished. For example, his sacrifice of atonement and is not to be replicated. However, it's our daily obedience to the law given by the Holy Spirit that constitutes as worship in the spirit of the law. Not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Something like, as, as an example, I just, you know, every year a family goes to Branson, Missouri, and it's in the Ozark Mountain. It's, it's, it's beautiful. But in Chicago, there are a whole lot of good-looking young people. In the Ozarks, there's a whole lot of people who have been over the mountain a few times. And, and they're older and they're sweet and they're full of wisdom. But I remember in those moments things that are simple in the commandments of God. Like in Leviticus, he says, rise in the presence of the aged. Do you know that's a biblical commandment? Meaning to show respect to the aged. To show respect to your elders. To show respect to those who've lived and gone ahead of you. That's actually a biblical commandment. Is it one that's esteemed today in our culture? No. People treat their bosses, their family members as if they're peers. And don't give them the respect that they actually deserve from their living. Right? But it's that spirit of the law that though Jesus lived that himself is not eradicated just because he fulfilled it. But it's what's required of us now living in the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. 
He said, Jesus did it, and therefore, by his example, I'm to follow it. The same law, not for my justification, but for his pleasure. This is the wisdom that he's saying, he's bringing, the Messiah is bringing. Not only returning people to true worship, but returning them to the wisdom of how to practically apply his law in everyday life. Oswald Chambers and his collection of writings, My Utmost for His Highest, actually said this, when looking back on the lives of men and women of God, the tendency is to say, what wonderfully keen and intelligent wisdom they had, and how perfectly they understood all that God wanted. But the keen and intelligent mind behind them was the mind of God, not human wisdom at all. We give credit to human wisdom when we should give credit to the divine guidance of God being exhibited through childlike people who were foolish enough to trust God's wisdom and his supernatural equipment. He's saying it's all mine. And ultimately, when people are wise, it's because they're just doing what I said to do in the first place. When people are blessed, it's because they're actually doing what I told them to do in the first place. It might seem foolish in the eyes of the world, but it's wise in my sight. It brings me pleasure, and it's the thing that the Messiah came to turn people back to. Now, this Messiah, in fulfillment of this word, this family line, there was a man named Craig A. Evans. He's a scholar, and he's a theologian who said this. The Messianic expectations in the Jewish and Christian faiths are traced back to God's covenant with King David. With King David, he's explaining this Isaiah 11 prophetic word talking about not only from whom he would come but what he would do when he came and the aftermath of the exile and cessation of the Davidic dynasty hope arose that God would someday restore a godly king to Israel and the kings were ultimately to turn people back to the commandments the true worship of God in their ways The kings were actually given the law of God to write out by hand so that they would recite it over and over again and remember these are the things that are going to keep the community in which you're leading blessed. I want you to write it and remember this law and as as you go, so the people will go. That's what we need to remember in our families, right? As parents, you know, as we go, so our children will go. We need to remember to set an example for them in the law of God and the ways of God. Some of Israel's prophets foretold the coming of a regal Davidic descendant, and their descriptions seemed to portray him as far more than a mere mortal. Isaiah foretold the coming of a child and son who will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and whose kingdom will never end. Again, Isaiah prophesied the coming of a branch of David on whom the Spirit of God will rest who will rule the earth with justice and equity. Descriptions such as these hinted that the coming anointed one, the Messiah, would be God himself. And whenever we hear the description of God himself over and over again, we hear that he's coming as not just a king, not just the Messiah, but he's coming as the king of kings. And he's coming as the Lord of lords. And the thing about this uh, dynasty that he was coming to fulfill is that part of the responsibility of the kings, those Davidic kings back in the day, were to not only war for, 
those that they were leading to bring them into the land, but also war for their protection. War for their protection as well. And we see in Matthew 1, if you read the genealogy of Jesus, a description of those kings who sometimes did well and sometimes didn't. Matthew 1, in verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. You can skip down because it goes through multiple generations, multiple names that you'll see as familiar if you ever read the Bible. And then it says that Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam. You skip on down. And then you see at the very end of that set of scripture, it says that Methan was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So you see that by the time Jesus showed up, though he came from a sort of dynastic line, the kings failed in their responsibility not only to turn the people to the law of God, and then therefore they and their people were judged, but they failed to protect the people that they were leading. They failed to fight for the people that they were leading. And so by the time the Roman Empire came about, they were a stump. But whenever you see God spoken of, you see him spoken of in these terms. Whenever Exodus the exodus from Egypt was happening. Moses was describing God, the God that we're called to love, serve, and fear. And in Exodus 15, it said that Moses and the people sang this song to the Lord after their exodus from Egypt, after God had actually shown himself strong to deliver them from their bondage to slavery. And they said, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord, when we know God, we, he, they're saying the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And this Messiah who is to come was not only described as a great king, but he's described as the Lord. He was described as the one who is a great warrior, a man of war. And though people were not physically trapped anymore, they were oppressed by the Roman, um, um, the Roman Empire at the time, but they weren't physically oppressed, there was a trap, there was a bondage in their hearts that they couldn't break free from. And there was this Messiah who was coming, this man of war, who was going to come to fight for them to set them free. Coming from this same stump, this same root was going to come and fight for them and set them free. It was a responsibility of the dynastic line that God had for them, and now he was coming to fulfill it. I'm coming, he says, to set you free. The Messiah, who was the Davidic king, ultimately did this. Not only did he fulfill the commandments that God had for him, but Jesus said words like this, if anyone chooses to obey my teaching, they will know the truth, they will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. They will know the truth. They won't choose me as one of many options, but they'll actually know the truth. 
and the truth will set them free. Now, this is a significant claim because of the fact that the truth we often think of as merely a concept, but whenever the truth was described in the scripture, the truth was described as a person. And all of a sudden he's saying, if you choose to obey my teaching, I'm bringing you back to true worship, I'm bringing you back to wisdom, I'm bringing you back to my commandments and how to live for them on a daily basis, you'll know the truth. And he says, I'm the truth. And ultimately, I'll set you free. Because what he did on the cross was he began to fight for us. What he did in his perfect, sinless life is he was fighting, not only for the pleasure of God, but he was fighting to set us free. And each of us have attempted to live according to that law, according to the commandments of God and fallen short. But then there's one who's fought for us. A king that in the midst of all opposition, in the midst of all temptation, the same temptation that you and I experience on a daily basis, he fought and he won. In the midst of pressures of schedule and time saying, you don't have time for God. You don't have time to put him first in your life. You don't have the space to do that. There's one who had more responsibility and pressure than any of us have ever had. And he fought and made the decisions that were going to be the fulfillment of the law and said, I'm going to do it anyway, and I'm fighting so that they might actually go free. I'm fighting so that there's not only an example for them to follow, but I'm fighting so that once they choose to repent and believe in me, I'll come and make a home in them. And if they choose me, I will explode in them with strength. Because the same spirit that was on me, giving me the spirit of knowledge and wisdom, counsel and of the fear of the Lord, will be in them too. And it will invigorate them to make right decisions according to my word just as well. That he says, I'll fight for you and set you free. On the cross I took your punishment, but then here's the end of the story, I rose from the dead. And isn't that good news? He didn't just die, but in power, he rose from the dead to give new life and freedom to those who would believe. And he says, I'm a man of war coming not only to deal with what's going on externally, but internally. This is why Jesus said, the kingdom of God, it's within you. The rule of God, it's within you. It's amongst you. And even as I'm the Messiah who's returning you to my law, I'm the man of war coming to fight for you to set you free. And if you would begin to, with knowledge, go back to my word and say, I want to worship God in a manner that's pleasurable to him. I want to once again turn to his word and actually become wise in its application on a daily basis. What I do with my time, my relationships, my finances, my, uh, my, my interactions at work, my pursuits. He says, I'll give you the strength to, and I'll come and give you the ability to make those hard decisions. To make the decisions that seem difficult. Where it says, wait, how can I order when everything's clamoring for my attention and my resources and my energy? How can I put someone I don't even see first? He says, I'll give you the internal strength to do it because I'm a man of war fighting on your behalf. Not just externally, but internally. You'll have strength of heart. The king will come and make a rule in your life. He'll break the shackles that aren't just metaphorical, they're real. Over your mind and your heart. He will drive out those unclean spirits that have had you bound for years. 
He says, I will set you free. I'll be a Messiah to you. I'll heal you. And I'll give you the ability to walk in my kingdom covenant and ways. Why? Because that's who I am. That's what Jesus says. I'm the one who came as the root of the stump of Jesse. Your life might have been whittled down to this point, merely reacting to circumstances, environments, tragedies that you've experienced in your life. But God says, I'm coming as a champion to rebuild it. I'm coming as the conquering king to rebuild lives. And what was once a stump, I'm coming to make into an oak of righteousness. That will love me, honor me, and follow me in my ways. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's why when he's fulfilled this messianic word, he's fulfilled one of the, or several of the deepest needs in our lives. We need an example of true worship. We need wisdom to know how to apply his word. And we need number three, a champion who will win for us battles we can't win for ourselves. And that's what Jesus has done for us in his good news and made available to us. And not just to us who are in here, but to everyone today. If you haven't received it, receive it today. If you know someone who hasn't received it, tis the season. Share it with them today. Because it's good news, not just for us, but for all. Amen? All right, worship team, let's come up. Why don't we stand?
is that once again Jesus did fulfill everything that was required of us and both the law and the prophets is all done he has fulfilled it and even as he was hanging on that tree he says it is finished it's done now come repent and believe the good news and so whenever we celebrate this communion moment what we're doing is we're celebrating the finished work of Christ the finished work of Jesus Christ who came as our conquering king to win the victories for us that we couldn't win. And on the night he was betrayed, he was with his disciples and he took of the bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And in this moment, as we 
have been celebrating all that we're thankful for, you better believe this is the most important thing, that we're thankful for the broken body of Jesus Christ, broken for us so that our sin might not be held against us, so that we might in fact go free and come into the promises that he has for us. So let's make this a moment of prayer. And as you recognize the broken body of Christ, you can take of the bread. And on that same night, Jesus, still with his disciples, took of the cup and he said, This is my blood of a new covenant poured out for you. Do this also in remembrance of me. It was his spilled blood that washed us clean from guilt, washed us clean from shame, took those who were once far away because of our rebellion and our sin. And he says, I'm bringing you near. I'm bringing you back into friendship with myself. Reconciliation is what it's called. And he did that through his spilled blood. So as you remember the spilled blood of Jesus, if you need to make your peace with Jesus, now's your moment to do so. We can take of the juice and recognize the spilled blood of Christ. And now, because we're thankful, we can rejoice. <laughs>